This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. This is Philip Nice from thetrumpet.com. The Catholic role in the coronation and among the Copts. Bashar Assad, Iran, and the Arab bloc. Victory Day in Russia and millions of dollars for the Bidens from China. All this and more coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour Week in Review this graduation weekend, May 2023, here in Edmond, Oklahoma, USA. Families are traveling in for high school and college graduations. As you might know, the publisher of the Trumpet also sponsors schools here at our headquarters in central Oklahoma, as well as in England. So it's been a week of exams and dinners and parties and rehearsals and early next week, graduation and commencement. Lots of people arriving in town today celebrating the fact that there is still light to be found. There still is hope for the future. Uh, And if you're listening online, we say good morning, good afternoon, good day, good evening to you wherever you are around the world. We've been hearing from you. And thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. And thank you to those who have taken the time to send an email or even say in person that you are listening. Joining us today online ahead of graduation preparations there in England is Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. As well as Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. And here in the studio with me are Andrew Miller. Hello. As well as Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. In the second portion of the show, we'll focus in on one of the biggest issues of the week, something you've heard about, a dam that just broke yesterday. But here in the main portion, each of our trumpet writers, as usual, summarizes the three, four, five biggest developments in his region and then focuses in on one of those. Richard Palmer, among other things, you monitor for certain developments to take place in the region of Europe. From that perspective, what is the main news made in Europe this week? Well, Europe, also my home country of the UK, where, like we talked about last time, we had the coronation over the weekend. That was probably uh, my week's highlight in terms of news events. I I enjoyed that more than I thought I would. Uh, I think there's just a lot there that's really inspiring. I think the music they often use is fantastic. You know, they're opening by singing the Psalms and about loving Jerusalem. And then, of course, Zadok, the priest, uh, lots of trumpet blasts, lots of fantastic words. Uh, I wrote an article just this week about the missed opportunity of the coronation because there is such a fantastic message that it sends out that is then completely masked by the fact that nobody follows through on what it says. But uh, I think one of the big takeaways, though, from the coronation as well was this closeness with Rome, even more than I think we had an idea of when we talked about this last week. You you had Catholic cardinals attending probably for the first time since the coronation of Queen Mary I. So you're looking at arguably the most Catholic coronation in about 400 years. So I think that's a a really important uh, takeaway from that. I think uh, other important news this week, we've had some stats from Germany showing how they're funneling goods to Russia through third countries. So their imports, their exports to Russia are down 45 percent due to all of these sanctions. But their input, their exports to Kyrgyzstan are up 1000 percent. So you're just they're still selling to Russia. They're doing it via intermediaries. Uh, I think another important story we have we'll have up on the website probably beginning of next week where EU border guards are now cooperating with North Macedonia. So you're having this process where 
there's a whole range of countries now in the Balkans, including Serbia, that are outside the European Union, but EU border guards are guarding their borders. You know, basically a handful of EU troops are the ones that are protecting those countries as borders. And, and that's uh, a kind of, you see the, the expansion of the European empire, I think you, you could almost say with that. That was the missed opportunity of the coronation. I really encourage our listeners to take a look at that. That ceremony is, uh, first of all, once in a lifetime, maybe twice in a lifetime kind of event. And there's uh, information in that article that uh, for all the coverage that the coronation has uh, received isn't in any other coverage except for on the trumpet.com. So, Mr. Palmer, what's the main story that you'd like to focus in on? So Pope Francis was, uh, he met with the Pope of the Coptic Church, uh, the, the basically the Egyptian, the ancient Egyptian, I shouldn't say ancient Egyptian, that makes it sound like it's 4,000 years old, um, but the Egyptian church that, that had a split with Rome a very, very long time ago. Uh, these two, it's a meeting of two popes, and what was pretty remarkable is while he was there, he he recognized a group of Coptic Christians that were murdered by the Islamic State as martyrs. And he put them in the Roman martyrology, this kind of the Roman Catholic calendar of um, martyrs and, and saints that the Catholic Church kind of revere and set aside days of the year to remember. And this is a pretty big deal. So, so John Allen is, is, is one of the best commentators on Catholic news. He writes for, for Crux, uh, uh, or Crux Now, a, a Catholic news website. And uh, he wrote, for those with ears to hear, every so often it's actually possible to detect the sound of history's tectonic plates as they shift. Such was the case Thursday with a remarkable gesture by Pope Francis of inscribing a group of Coptic Christian martyrs into the Roman martyrology, Catholicism's official a compendium of saints. And he talks about there's a, there's a little bit of um, precedent with this, with a 2001 uh, decision, but this was a, uh, I think it does a couple of very prophetic things. It First of all, this is a big step towards unity between the Catholic Church and the Coptic Church. It's a major gesture from the Pope to say, you know, yes, we're, we're, we're going to let you recognize martyrs and will, you know, if you're holding up members of the Coptic church and saying, these are martyrs, these are basically saints, you can pray to them, you can worship them, you can venerate them. Well, at that point, you're not really two separate churches. You're not saying, well, these people were heretics. So it's a big step between, of, of unity between the, Orthodox, uh, for, between the Catholic church and, and this Coptic church and the Oriental Orthodox, the whole kind of Oriental Orthodox community. Uh, and then also, these are modern martyrs. These were mar these were people that were killed for their religion by the Islamic State in 2015. Not ancient history. And so for them to for the Catholic Church to come forwards and say, well, they're martyrs. They died for their faith, and we're going to honor and revere them for that. Uh, that puts the Catholic Church on the front lines of protecting Christians that are being persecuted across the Middle East. Uh, you know, if you were to, I think it's, it's maybe less so the last year or so, but if you were to kind of put together a top 10 underreported news stories or kind of like big trends that are underway that we often don't talk about very much because there often isn't one massive event to talk about, but something that's just steadily kind of going on in the background, 
The persecution of Christians across the Middle East would, would, I think, make that list. There has been a very steady decrease over the last 10 years or so of Christians across the Middle East, even on into Pakistan, India, where they're coming under attack from from Hindus that are becoming more and more extreme. Uh, So this is a a huge and underreported story. And so for the Catholic Church to draw attention to that, they're putting themselves more into that story. And they've they've gained some criticism recently. Pope Francis has gained some criticism with some within the Catholic Church for not doing more to stand up for Christians in the Middle East. And so this represents a bit of a change on that. It's it's a very important prophetic change that we've been watching for. So you know, I've referenced I've referenced all of this, all of this Bible prophecy. We have a book, Jerusalem in Prophecy that goes through what we're looking for in the Middle East and that we're watching for Catholic-led Europe to really step into the Middle East to play a role as a peacemaker, but then also for the Catholic Church to, to and this Catholic-led Europe to confront radical Islam. And I think, and we're, so if you think in terms of Europe becoming more Christian, more Catholic, Europe confronting radical Islam, uh, Europe unifying with Christians, having a bigger role to play in the Middle East. All of this ties right in line with that. And so this news from this week, it ties right in with Daniel chapter 11 that says you're going to see a Christian king of the north clashing with a radical Islamic king of the south. So again, look for more coverage of this and other developments in the Catholic Church on thetrumpet.com. Incidentally, go to thetrumpet.com and sign up for the Trumpet Brief daily email that Mr. Palmer manages. Uh, so that you don't miss any of these stories and they come to you wherever you may be. So we see the Pope and the Catholics are involved in the British coronation there, as you mentioned, and now we see uh, the Catholic Church making other moves. And this might seem just like religious news, quote-unquote, right now for readers of Crux or, or what have you, but this is world news, and this definitely will be world news. This is something setting up to affect all of Catholicism, all of Christianity, really, and all of Europe and far beyond that. So thank you, Mr. Palmer, for leading us off with that important story. You mentioned Jerusalem and prophecy, which listeners can get for free at thetrumpet.com slash literature. Jerusalem and prophecy. Mihailo Zekic, you watch Jerusalem and the Middle East generally. What's the update from the Middle East this week? Well, we covered last week on the rising tensions between Israel and terror groups in Gaza. There's been a bit more of a headbutting in that sphere this week. On Tuesday, the Israelis carried out airstrikes uh, in Gaza against three senior members of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. That's, uh, if the name doesn't give it away, a pretty notorious terror group. Uh, they're, they're specifically linked in high offices with the Al-Quds Brigade, uh, or the armed wing of the uh, PIJ, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And for those that speak Arabic, they'll, people would recognize that Al-Quds means Jerusalem in Arabic. So speaking of Jerusalem there, the t- target for most terrorists in the region around Israel. Um, there was originally last week when the skirmish was going on, there was a ceasefire going on. It looks like that's all done. The day after the airstrikes happened, two PIJ gunmen opened fire on Israeli soldiers in the West Bank near the uh, city of Jenin, which is a bit infamous as being a terror hotspot. So we'll keep our eyes open, as always, to see how uh, what happens in that realm. In other news, this is, I guess, really, really news because it hasn't happened yet. 
uh, in advance. Tomorrow is the Turkish presidential election we've talked about. Um, it's too early to say how things will go. Uh, strongman Recep type Erdogan is probably having the toughest election of his political career, which is saying something because he's been in power for about 20 years now. But there's a, I'd say maybe not a decent chance, but a higher than normal chance that we could see a new sheriff in Ankara in the not too distant future. So we'll have more updates on that, hopefully after the election has concluded. That Turkish election on Sunday and not having monitored the Middle East as closely as you, obviously, and seeing that I believe it was 800 rockets hitting Israel within a, a day and a half. Um, I, I saw that headline. And then the, a possible very big change there in Turkey and something we've watched closely. I'm surprised that neither of those is your main story. You're, you're going to bring us something else. What's that other main story and why is it so important? Well, it's, uh, it's sort of like what Mr. Palmer was talking about earlier with like underreported trends that maybe get missed by people watching the news. No bombs went off, or at least no literal bombs went off with this. Nobody was unseated as ruler. But it's a pretty tectonic shift. On May 7th, the Arab League had a meeting in Cairo. That's the intergovernmental organization that includes all the Arab states in the world from Mauritania and West Africa all the way to uh, Bahrain and Qatar uh, and all these other countries in the Persian Gulf. It's meant to give the whole Arab world one voice, but it hasn't been able to give the whole Arab world one voice because one conspicuous m member of the Arab world has not been a part of it or rather been suspended. That is Syria due to the actions of the of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian civil war attacking his own people with chemical weapons, for example, they've suspended him, uh, basically showing that most of the Arab world doesn't want to deal with him. There's very few things he can ignite all the Arabs, like from uh, Africa to uh, the Persian Gulf, on uh, trying to get rid of Assad's one of them. But looks like they've come past that. In that meeting on May 7th, they voted to get rid of Syria's suspension from the Arab League, which means now, even though there has been no regime change in Damascus, even though Assad's still in power and in a more secure power position than he was this time 10 years ago, even though a lot of Arab governments still don't like him, he's back in the diplomatic fold. Um, there are obviously still a lot of other things that uh, have to happen. A lot of Western governments still don't want to have anything to deal with him. But one of the biggest hurdles was the pressure coming from other Arab governments to try and get rid of him. And that's about gone now. And that's uh, and that's without him making uh, significant changes in, in his behavior, I would say. Is that an accurate assessment? Well, he made a few token concessions. He said he's willing to accept Syrian refugees that fled into places like Jordan uh, back into Syria and settle them in again. He's also promised to uh, help neighbors like Jordan and some of these other countries and tackling drug smuggling from Syria into these countries. You could imagine with a country as isolated as Syria, they're going to do whatever they can to uh, uh, get their economy going. And But if the normalization path keeps going forward. He might not need these uh, alternate um, economic lifelines, so to speak. Uh, this is 
again, it's not really so much one event. It's a bit of a larger trend of these Arab governments opening up to Assad. Saudi Arabia especially has been pushing to bring Syria back into the Arab League. They've uh, given Syria aid in the big earthquake that happened there a few months ago. Um, The United Arab Emirates, another supposedly Western-friendly Arab government, has been uh, making moves to try and bring them back in. So, well, the big takeaway from this is... A lot of countries are hoping that the revolutionaries would have ousted Assad or that he would have accepted some sort of compromise deal or that he would have fled in exile to Russia or something like that. That didn't happen. Assad stuck to his guns. It was pretty difficult, but in the end, it paid off. He's still president. He's still in power. He's only in his 50s. He's relatively young as far as uh, dictators for life go. And the rest of the Arab world sees there's really no point in trying to keep doing what they're doing. The revolutionaries are failing. Um, They're just making Syria more and more angry. Syria is an ally of Iran, of course, and most, or a lot of Arab governments at least, do not like Iran. So no point forcing this country to stay in Iran's sphere for no other reason than nobody else will take them. And they're just trying a different strategy to try and solve the Syrian crisis. Maybe, obviously, the... uh, packages of chemical weapons being dumped on cities have stopped. Um, There's still fighting going on there, but the mass exodus of refugees is stopped, and now countries are trying to work out how are we going to get the refugees in our countries out? How are we going to uh, not get on Assad's bad side and encourage, say, him sponsoring terrorists against us or that sort of thing? How are we going to make the most out of this bad situation and at this point bring him back into the Arab fold sending an olive branch to him to become one of theirs again looks like the path they're taking. So we've got explosions and gunfire in Israel. We've got war, incessant war, it seems, in Syria. And we have an Iranian ally in Bashar al-Assad surviving. Yet the Trumpet.com is still telling you that Syria's relationship with other Arab nations is more important than it's really uh, than Assad's relationship with Iran. Where should people look to uh, understand what our uh, projection is for what's going to happen with Syria? Well, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, wrote an article in 2012 about this for uh, the print edition called How the Syrian Crisis Will End. That was obviously um, a long time ago. A lot has happened since he wrote this article. But the main thing that he wrote was, you're going to see Iran, uh, sorry, you're going to see Assad break away from Iran and join the modern Arabs and most especially a German-led Europe. He based that uh, analysis off of a prophecy in Psalm 83, we go to often on this show, which talks about, um, well, Mr. Palmer referenced the king of the south earlier. Uh, That's a prophecy in Daniel talking about Iran and a German-led Europe clashing. Iran has its allies. Psalm 83 fills us in with who Germany's allies are going to be and includes peoples like the Ishmaelites or the modern Saudis, um, the ancestral peoples of places like Jordan, Turkey. And crucially, it also mentions the ancient peoples of Syria. Now, at the time Mr. Fleury wrote about this prophecy, at the time he wrote that article, Syria was very much firmly in the Iranian camp. And the Syrian civil war, uh, we didn't know how it was going to play out per se, but we we knew that Assad, or rather Syria, was going to switch sides somehow. The Syrian civil war looked like it was a good opportunity to do so. That didn't happen. But what we're seeing instead, irony of ironies, Assad is still in power, but 
it's in his through his regime that all these outreaches to these moderate Arab groups are coming. His country is cash strapped. He's in the alliance with Iran more out of necessity rather than any ideological brotherhood. Iran's an Islamist theocracy, always trying to sponsor revolution abroad. Um, but Assad's regime is technically socialist. It's not um, radical religion per se. Uh, or the Iranians have been doing stuff that Assad doesn't necessarily like, like converting Shi uh, Sunni mosques in Syria to Shia mosques, taking over the administration of schools, that kind of thing. Um, he'll take what he can get as long as he doesn't get sent to the International Criminal Court for war crimes. He'll take whoever uh, offers him the best deal. And in this case, the modern Arabs, countries like Saudi Arabia, they don't have the bad associations that Iran would bring. They may not necessarily try to convert him into a theocracy. They have a lot more cash to spare to give to his cash-strapped country. And with this warming up, we could see them Syria uh, getting closer to these countries. And if Saudi Arabia and Iran or these modern Arabs and Iran were to have another rupture with Syria normalized already with their economies, um, Syria doesn't want to have happen to it again what happened to it with sanctions and being cut off from the global economy. It could very well side with these more rich, uh, more generous uh, Arab countries against Iran. We'll see how it plays out. It's the Middle East. There's always a lot of uh, trips and turns that nobody's expecting, but that's what we can expect uh, in the long run. Assad to join with these modern Arabs and eventually Europe or, or Syria rather. And that's why you need a guide to follow all these uh, trends and to know what to look for, because admittedly, it could it seems many of these trends seem like they could go either way. Uh, just looking at it without the guide of um, some of the uh, guides that you mentioned there, how the Syria, how the Syrian crisis will end and the king of the south, both at the trumpet dot com. Thank you, Mihailo Zekic, for continuing to monitor the Middle East. So many significant stories we're covering here, and we'll cover a history-changing issue in the last segment. And we haven't even covered Asia at all yet, Jeremiah Jacques. Fill us in on This Week in Asia. Sure, yeah. One notable development is that China and Pakistan ironed out a deal this week to let Pakistan buy Russian oil using the Chinese currency, the renminbi. So that's, uh, you know, another blow to the U.S. dollar and just the most recent of many blows against it over the last year or so. Uh, the efforts by American adversaries to kind of dethrone the dollar are intensifying. And you really have to wonder just how much longer the USD will remain the king of currencies. Another big story this week, China appears to be working on a deal to broker peace in Sudan. So this follows, of course, the landmark deal that the Chinese worked out back in March between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It also follows Chinese efforts to mediate some kind of peace deal between Israel and Palestine. Those were notable developments that really saw China moving into this role that used to be almost the exclusive domain of the United States. And now we may be seeing something similar take shape there in Sudan. There was a framework agreement that the U.S. had brokered that has now fallen through, and now China may be the party that steps in to end this conflict. Uh, one last story that I'll, I'll quickly mention here is that Taiwan announced this week that it'll be taking delivery of U.S.-built HIMARS systems a year earlier than expected. The HIMARS is just a remarkably adept multiple-launch rocket system. They mount them on military trucks, and Taiwan was supposed to be taking delivery of 29 of these from the U.S. in 2027. 
but now it'll be 2026 instead. So this is the kind of system that could go a very long way toward helping Taiwan defend against a Chinese amphibious invasion, especially when you're talking about 29 of these cutting-edge units. So it could be that uh, China will now want to move its plans forward to try to make its move, you know, before Taiwan has these HIMARS systems in hand. So things around the Taiwan Strait may be on kind of an accelerated timeline or timetable here, and it uh, gives us a lot to, to carefully watch. That's right. It's, it's uh, again, I, I very often think that we could spend the whole segment on any one of those that you just mentioned there, but uh, we're, we're going to turn our attention to Russia. Yes, Russia just held its most important holiday. This is Victory Day, May 9th. It's supposed to be the day when um, all the sacrifices of the World War II generation are honored. You know, the Soviet Union lost at least 9 million soldiers in World War II, more than any other nation. And it's just a major point of pride for Russia today that they were vital to defeating the, that Nazi darkness. Really, it's the biggest point of pride for Russia. Uh, one thing the Russians never mentioned, though, is that they were effectively allied with Nazi Germany for the first two years of World War II, and they really only switched sides and started to fight against the Nazis after the Nazis had stabbed them in the back by invading. Uh, but nevertheless, Victory Day is Russia's most important holiday, and this year, since Russia is engaged in a war on Ukraine, which it says is full of Nazis, this day had even more importance than usual. The celebration was, you know, a major affair in Moscow, the star of the show, of course, Russian President Vladimir Putin, and he was joined for ceremonies there by uh, six leaders from former Soviet republics. So I think the decision of those six men to join him shows the power that Putin continues to wield over the, uh, the former Soviet states. It also shows that Putin isn't nearly as isolated as many in the West would like to think that he is. But these leaders, they, they watched on while the annual military parade made its way through Red Square. The parade itself was actually very muted this year. Normally they have flybys conducted by, you know, dozens of warplanes and helicopters. Normally they have a couple of dozen of their most advanced tanks rolling in tight formation. This time there was not a single aircraft in the skies. And as for tanks, there was one, one tank rolling through Red Square, and it was actually an antique model, a T-34. So those are built back in uh, the mid-40s. Um, so that was quite underwhelming, and it, and it drew some bad press. But Putin still made his big speech, and in this stirring message to his people, he said, A real war has been unleashed by the West against our homeland, but we have fought back against international terrorism. So that's the way Putin sees it. You know, by helping Ukraine defend itself against Russia, the West has unleashed war on Russia. That's, you know, a perverse read of the situation, but nothing really that we wouldn't expect from Putin. He also said the goal of the enemy is the destruction of Russia, which is not true. We want Russia to be incorporated into, you know, the, the global community of nations and all that. But he says, no, they are out to destroy our country. He also stressed that Russia's future depends on the performance of Russian troops in Ukraine right now. Um, so it all just shows just how much Putin thinks is at stake for him personally and for his nation. And it shows that his regime thinks it has no choice 
but to win this war. And, and despite the setbacks that they've faced, there is no reduction in their determination to win. As you say, on Victory Day in Russia, Russia is in the process of waging war. So when Putin is not giving a speech saying that the West is literally attacking the motherland, what actions is he taking in prosecuting the actual war on Ukraine? Well, it has been bogged down. You know, Russia has struggled more than they ever expected to. But it could be that uh, change is on the horizon that could really boost the Russian effort. Just one day after that speech in Red Square, Putin actually issued an order for Russia's army reservists to report to military training camps for drills. Um, now, the Russian government claims that this measure is routine. It's just designed to better train all these reservists. But in light of the war, and especially the intensifying struggle just to hold on to ground previously claimed um, or seized, in light of all that, some fear that this or order could be in preparation for another big wave of soldiers being mobilized. I spoke on Wednesday with Kyiv-based analyst Taras Revenet, and he said, quote, Putin needs more and more and more soldiers, and it's quantity over quality. So, you know, Revenets, he's among those that think that this particular order could be the first step of another mass mobilization, and that this may mean hundreds of thousands of new Russian troops could soon be on the Ukrainian battlefields. So Putin continuing to prosecute that war, and it continues to grind, and more uh, quantity is being, uh, blood is being poured into uh, the Russian side, and uh, more bloodletting on both sides, of course. But let me ask you this. Does the Trumpet.com watch this war, and Putin in particular for that matter, for the same reasons as other people are watching that war? We have quite a different uh, motivation. Of course, we can't say for sure how Russia's war on Ukraine will turn out. And there are indications that we could still be in the war's early phases. But there's a passage of Bible prophecy, uh, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, that talk about a Russian leader a leader who will head this alliance of Asian nations in the near future, a whole group of nations. And Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has said that this is describing Vladimir Putin. So, you know, we can't say for sure what all the outcomes of this specific current war will be, but even if Russia doesn't win the quick victory that it wants, Mr. Flurry says we should not expect that to have any lasting, uh, you know, deleterious impact on Putin's power. And in fact, we should expect him to soon be leading an exponentially larger army that includes Chinese forces and those of several other Asian states. And uh, Mr. Flurry has a booklet all about these prophecies and his understanding of them. It's called The Prophesied Prince of Russia. And that's a booklet that we send out for free. So for any listener who would like to understand Russia's war on Ukraine in the context of prophecy. I, uh, I hope you'll order your free copy of The Prophesied Prince of Russia. So a remarkable claim to make. Russia will not just survive. Putin will not just survive, but he will lead an exponentially larger, literally exponentially larger force, uh, even, a, even ahead of China, leading Chinese forces. And as you said, that's in The Prophesied Prince of Russia on the trumpet.com slash literature the prophesied Prince of Russia. And for that latest uh, update, look at thetrumpet.com. Putin orders reservists to training camps, triggering fears of new mobilization. And we, are, we have great mobilizations yet ahead. 
So thank you for watching that, Mr. Jacques, and bringing us the unique trumpet perspective on this major ongoing conflict. We also watch America, of course, where a lot of things are unfolding. Andrew Miller, give us the update on Anglo-America. Yes, well, I, I hope all our listeners are sitting down for this, but we found out this week that the Biden family is corrupt. And so uh, there was, in particular, there was a press conference on Wednesday. The House Oversight Committee presented uh, extensively documented evidence that at least nine Bidens were influence peddling in foreign countries uh, for years, laundering money through about 21 different shell companies. And Representative James Comer has more details on what these documents say. Joe Biden said numerous times, Sean, that uh, his family never received a penny from China. We proved today that Joe Biden lied during his presidential campaign in 2020, and he continues to lie today. Not only did they take uh, a penny, Sean, they took over $10 million, and we're still looking. We still have many bank many more banks to go and many more LLCs to siphon through. But right now, the number's up to $10 million. So we proved that Joe Biden was dishonest about his family receiving money from China. We also proved that uh, the media has not been reporting this correctly, as you could imagine, Sean. They said that none of these transactions ever occurred while Joe Biden was in public office. We just proved that was false as well. Most of these shell companies were created when Joe Biden was vice president. And when you got to the $1 million from Romania, it was filtered and laundered, however you want to describe it, down to the Bidens in 17 payments. 16 of the 17 payments from uh, the, the corrupt uh, person in Romania, the foreign national in Romania, happened while Joe Biden was vice president and visiting Romania and in charge of things like foreign aid for the Obama administration. So the, the level of public corruption that we talked about today was breathtaking. And the fact that, uh, as you mentioned, Sean, the mainstream media, for the most part, didn't cover it at all and said covered the George Santos stuff it is further proof that this media is, is covering for Joe Biden. Right. They are covering for public corruption at the highest levels in a manner we've never seen in the history of our country. Yeah. And so as you just heard there from uh, Representative Comer, I mean, this is some really some historic revelations. I mean, we've known for at least a couple of years now that the the Biden family was uh, influence peddling. Uh, but these particular revelations uh, give us quite a bit about just the extent of how many Bidens were involved in this. I mean, they reference uh, Joe Biden's brother, James Biden, as receiving money, James Biden's wife, Sarah Biden, uh, of course, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, Hunter's wife, Melissa, Hunter's former wife, Kathleen, uh, Hunter's former wife and sister-in-law, uh, Haley. And, uh, and also, um, they, <laughs> they've given him a little more privacy to the younger generation, but at least two of James Biden's children and one of Joe Biden's grandchildren 
involved in this uh, these laundering efforts. And you've got a handwritten chart there to keep it all straight. I didn't even know there were nine Bidens until before this, so I, I, I had to graph it out. And of course, uh, the big guy, as he's referred to on the Hunter Biden laptop, Joe Biden himself, uh, is not referenced in these documents, although we know from the Hunter Biden laptop that he was receiving a, a 10% cut of, a, of some of the Chinese deals. Uh, the Wall Street Journal's reported on this, making out the logical point that it's like there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with the president's family doing business deals with companies that aren't headquartered in the United States. But the big thing that's concerning here is like, what, what were they paying them for? Because a lot of them were energy companies. Hunter Biden is not, he does not have a master's degree in petroleum engineering or any other expertise that would qualify him to do business with the companies he's doing business from other than his father was the vice president of the United States at the time, which makes it pretty much a sure shot that this is influence peddling. Uh, you're paying <laughs> the Biden family, uh, according to these documents, these documents say that they got at least $10 million from these 21 companies. So you're receiving $10 million uh, for providing expertise that you don't have just because these foreign companies are trying to ingratiate themselves to the Obama Biden family. So it's, um, which is a national security threat. And are these principally Chinese companies, you said? The, uh, the 36 page, I have that in front of me as well. The 36 page memorandum released on May 10th mostly deals with Chinese and Bulgarian, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, Chinese and Romanian companies. Uh, so, Though there's other, uh, they did a Senate report last year that highlighted some of the business dealings in Ukraine, Russia, uh, and Kazakhstan as well. So quite a bit of range there. So we'll definitely, as we often do on this program, put America under attack in the show notes, which exposes the uh, spiritual component behind this attack on America. And it is definitely attack. Uh, Isaiah 1 verses 5 through 6 talks about the the whole head or government structure of uh, anti-America being sick and faint uh, uh, from the, the top of the head all the way down to the toe, there being no soundness in it. And uh, we're definitely seeing that as you dig into the uh, all these corrupt connections between the Bidens and the, the Clintons and the Obamas. Uh, just showing how much, um, like, just outright rank financial business corruption is uh, financing this attempt to fundamentally transform America. America Under Attack, the latest printing just arrived here at Trumpet headquarters yesterday, the advanced copies. Uh, this one, a further, further expanded edition, a hardcover edition, in fact, America Under Attack, a booklet that uh, was le much less obvious than it is now when it first came out. Now, uh, a lot of people can recognize that America is under attack, but order your copy. Again, the uh, latest hardcover edition, expanded edition is available, America Under Attack. You can go to thetrumpet.com slash literature or try americaunderattack.com for a special website devoted just to that title.
So thank you, Mr. Miller, for that update. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up, Title 42, Immigration and How It Can Change History. We're back. Today we finish out Trumpet Hour with a discussion on a major issue affecting multiple regions, and that issue surged into the news just yesterday as Title 42 ended. Andrew Miller, what was Title 42, and what did it prevent until yesterday? Yeah, Title 42 was a a policy that the Trump administration put in place at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which basically said that just in an attempt to stop the spread of COVID into the United States, uh, any illegal immigrants who came here from countries with high rates of COVID infection uh, could be deported till after the pandemic was over. Uh, I think a lot of conservatives were probably wondering why uh, you couldn't just deport someone here for the crime of coming illegally, but the government lacked the will to do that, so they used Title 42 uh, as a legitimate way to protect America from COVID, but also uh, as a legitimate way to deter illegal immigrants from coming. Now that Biden has declared that the COVID emergency is over, Title 42 has um, uh, expired uh, you no longer have that deterrent. And so in the past week or two, uh, the number of illegals being apprehended at the southern border has spiked from about 6,000 to 11,000 as more and more people realize that, well, they might as well come if they can't be sent back right away. So border crossings, by by official estimates, going uh, ba- basically almost doubling. What's the significance of of this uh, surge across the border? Right. Well, it's definitely going to tie up more and more government resources. Uh, even the Biden administration has sent down uh, 1,500 troops from the U.S. military, uh, not to deport anyone, but at least to help with uh, warehouse staffing and data entry and other tasks with uh associated with processing these many people into into immigrant camps. I think the <laughs> uh, the Babylon Bee joke, which I cite on this program sometimes, is that Biden sent down 15,000 troops to help uh, register new Democratic voters uh, at the southern border. Uh, and that is kind of funny, but it's also <laughs> not completely, not completely incorrect, is that's basically what these troops are doing, is like processing these um, people, they'll be assigned a court date. Um, and then because the migrant camps are going to get with 11,000 people a day are going to get full very quickly, uh, released into the United States in hopes that they'll come back for their court date. So a judge can decide whether they can stay or not. Although probably well over half of them, uh, just disappear into the interior and never actually show up for that court date. 11,000 per day. 11,000 per day, and that's using up resources, as you say, but there's also other consequences of what's pouring across that border, Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, one of the most alarming uh, aspects of America's open border is that China, which is you know one of America's main adversaries, uses it to kill, to poison as many Americans as possible. 
the Chinese accomplished this with what is uh, just a highly organized campaign to funnel synthetic opioids such as fentanyl into the U.S. where, you know, struggling Americans are inclined to use them and either wreck their lives or die as a result of it. Uh, these, these drugs, of course, are insanely strong. Fentanyl is about 50 times more potent than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. So that makes it just highly addictive and, and astonishingly high risk as well in terms of uh, fatal overdoses. Even tiny trace amounts can kill a person. And the Center for Disease Control says that more than 150 Americans die of overdoses related to these kinds of synthetic drugs every day. So that's one American every nine minutes, give or take. That means that since we started this episode of Trumpet Hour, probably four or five Americans have died from these specific drugs. And uh, it may sound like just another drug problem, you know, just another symptom of a broken society and broken people that's just kind of inevitable and that naturally happens. But if it were not for the Chinese and their concerted efforts to destabilize America with this campaign, um, then the U.S.'s fentanyl problem wouldn't be anywhere near as destructive as it is. So the way the Chinese campaign works is you've got Chinese chemical companies such as Wuhan Shoukang Biological Tech. These massive chemical companies, really they operate you know, at the orders of the Chinese Communist Party. And these companies work closely with Mexican drug cartels, such as the, you know, the, the notorious Sinaloa cartel and also CJNG. And the Chinese chemical companies sell these cartels, not the final product, but the ingredients, you could say, the precursor chemicals to make fentanyl. There's also evidence that the Chinese demand payment in cryptocurrency, just to kind of obscure the true origins and their role in this. Um, but anyway, the, the Chinese get these chemicals to the cartel's cooks who are working up in you know little mountain hideouts in northern Mexico. Um, from there, the cooks make it into this enticing poison, and the cartels smuggle it into the U.S. through this Swiss cheese border. And then they sell them to desperate Americans or Americans who are just a bit reckless and think they're going to have a fun experience. Um, and every nine minutes, one of those Americans dies. Kill the capitalists with what they like to taste. I have heard it expressed that way by uh, reportedly a Chinese leader in the past. Kill the capitalists with what they like to taste. Uh, a concerted effort to take advantage of the fact that a border is not secure and to weaken and destroy uh, America and American lives. Immigration is, is a major, major factor. I mean, the massive events can happen due to immigration when it's used uh, intentionally as a weapon, as you're talking about, Jeremiah Jacques, or, or just the, the crush of, of people and, and a different culture uh, coming into a, a nation to change that nation in some way. Yeah, migration has also been in the news here in the in the UK. It's a smaller country, but it's not quite so it's not quite on the same scale. But uh, it absolutely has been driving a lot of a lot of news here, uh, where we've had forty five thousand people come in in small boats. And uh, the the news from this week is that actually it's estimated that we could have a net legal migration of one million. So that's a million people, a million more people coming into the UK than are leaving the UK. This is by legal routes, and for a country of about 65 million people, 
that's pretty big. And uh, you can see the knock-on effects that this has everywhere. But I, I think you know, you'll see it in the US, we see it here. It's culturally is the, uh, the biggest impact and it's not politically correct to talk about it really. But you know, even during my lifetime, you've had very significant changes in the UK. You know, you, you, it's pretty common now to see Polish supermarkets uh, and even normal supermarkets stocking large amounts of Polish and Eastern European foods as we've had lots of Eastern Europeans come in. I, it's Again, it's not fashionable to talk about, but it leads to high crime uh, and it, it dilutes a national identity and it dilutes, say, the sense of camaraderie and um, common loyalty to, to a single nation. I think certainly there are people that have come in from overseas that are more British than the British, say, uh, and that have probably actually helped. Uh, you know, you can, it's easy to name great individuals or even groups of people that um, that have been, say, a positive. But at the same time, I don't think we can let that uh, let that take us away from the kind of the aggregate event for all of, uh, of of the impact that this is having. And I think you know you mentioned historical parallels. Um, you know, I think I think the history of Rome is a good example of this, where it is easy to point to people that saved the Roman Empire who were people from outside Italy and outside and arguably Rome would have fallen a lot earlier were it not for those. But at the same time, for most of its history, the Roman Empire was no longer particularly Roman either. Uh, this country that once or this, this state that once was a fiercely Republican state where you know, the basic law of its constitution was it's your duty to murder anybody who would set themselves up as a king becomes an empire and ultimately after Domitian becomes just a, uh, a complete autocracy where ruled over by basically a god king, the antithesis of what Rome aimed to be. So it is something that weakens bonds of unity and does lead to, to this dilution of, of what a nation it is. And uh, I think it, it's sad to see it happening. I mean, you look at, you look at, colorized footage, say, from the 50s in Britain and the 60s in Britain, and it's a different country. It's a country I have never experienced and fundamentally incapable of experiencing because my country has changed that much. And I think that's a very sad thing. And it's a sad thing to see this happening to the United States where, okay, it's a country built on immigration and on immigrants, but once there was an effort to instill them with, with a common core set of values, and that's gone now, and it's fundamentally transforming America. Well, I think you could even see the influence of what mass immigration, whether illegal or even legal, from various different parts of the world has in the coronation. We talked about the influence of different faiths that the, are now playing the role. Different, obviously, some are, shall we say, more established in Britain than and British culture and history than others. But at the same time, I mean, can you imagine when Queen Victoria was on the throne having uh, a representative from the Muslim community and the Sikh community and the Buddhist community going over there and giving, giving her their blessing? Of course you couldn't have. That's not to say people from the colonies weren't coming into Britain during the 19th century or whenever. But at the same time, it's gotten to the point where there's so many people coming from different parts of the world that it's fundamentally changing not just the way society works, but the very 
institutions that define society to their core, how they're functioning, how what defines them. There's a, a prophecy in Hosea 7 that talks about Ephraim, the ancestors of the modern British peoples, mixing himself among the peoples, having strangers devour their strength, and knowing it not. Uh, obviously, the tribes of Israel, of Ephraim being one of them, with a special covenant de determining how successful their countries would be on how they obey God or how much they follow God's laws. Um, and modern descendants of Israel haven't done that for a very long time, but to the extent that they try to, according to the best of their knowledge, God has respected that. But how is God supposed to steer the nation when a significant percentage of the people within that nation don't even have a history, say, with the the Bible, or don't even look to it as a text that has a place in their heritage, that has a place, uh, fundamental meaning with how they govern themselves. I mean, even where I grew up in Canada, another, if you're my Commonwealth country, I live 15 minutes away from the second largest Buddhist temple in North America. Um, how are people supposed to repent to a God they never knew, their ancestors themselves, that they do not have a history with God? And it's part of the reason of this introduction of other religions, especially from these diff from different groups of people migrating in, that has really, in a sense, made Israel almost incapable of repenting because so many people today living in these Israelite countries don't have a heritage with the countries that God had or the national histories that, with the individuals that God has blessed. And in a sense, it's as we talk about often on this program regarding different prophecies, it's almost fatally handicapped them. So, so much more here than just, oh, too many people are coming in and they're taking our stuff. We don't have enough, we don't have as much money as we would if if uh, we didn't have all this immigration. This goes so far beyond that. And a lot of people realize that, that when we, you talk about immigration, people try to cast it as, oh, that you don't like other people who aren't like you. There is so much more involved. History shows us that, uh, even what's happening right now shows us that, but it is, it, cities are getting overloaded. Texas cities are, are busing people out of there because they're just all over the place. The, the tent cities on the on the street corners or all along the street rather uh and and then the other cities far away are being affected by this new york city is saying uh that it's being destroyed by the migrant crisis new york city that's thousands of miles away chicago is saying don't send any more we don't have the space or the resources imagine what it's like on the texas border uh the space or the resources were were filled up a long time ago but again immigration is it's important to understand immigration, as you have been saying, is a history-changing factor. Uh, it's not just about the huge effect on resources, the millions and billions, and it's not even about the fact that in the last nine minutes that we've been talking, someone else has died because American adversaries obviously use a weak and open border to literally kill Americans and to weaken the entire society. I mean, it, immigration is changing, as you said, seemingly unrelated political and foreign policy factors. Uh, as you talked about, Mihailo, uh, overlooking a murderous dictator, using chemical weapons on his own people. Uh, we'll overlook that as long as you help us out with this displacement crisis, this migration crisis. 
And as we said, it can fundamentally and it will fundamentally change what a nation is. And if nothing else, it'll change it into a lawless place. Title 42 leads off the trumpet brief this morning. If you haven't just subscribed to the trumpet brief, uh, go ahead and do that. Go to the trumpet.com and subscribe. You'll learn about immigration and a lot more. That's all the time we have for today. Email us your thoughts as you have been doing, and we really are grateful for that, to letters at the trumpet.com. And thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Nick Irwin for engineering and production. I'm Philip Nice, and that is your Trumpet Hour Week in Review.